following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I want to wish you a very happy sauna or summer solstice. Um, yeah, for those of you that were uh, shivering and whining and pining about warmer weather back in January and February, I certainly hope you're happy. And this is crazy. Turn to Galatians 2, if you will. Um, I'd also like to uh, wish those of you in the room that are fathers a happy Father's Day. I know it is uh, our tradition to make much of mothers on Mother's Day and to ridicule and torment and demean fathers on Father's Day. Um, with, you know, all the terms that we are so used to, pinhead, um, schmuck, whatever it is you want to use or say. They've been said probably from up here in the last few years. Um, and so while I completely agree and acknowledge uh, that as well, and I feel it far too readily in my own life uh, too often, um, I, I do want to say this. Uh, our, our culture, we... we if we, if we step back and take a look at our culture today, um, it's kind of fun to make fun of the lack of uh, manhood in our society, right? And to uh, make fun of our whatever it might be. Um, you know, Ray Romano is every man in society, right? Like forgetful, not caring, um, trying hard, but just is going to continue to mess up, those kind of things. And so um, again, that is true a lot of times, uh, but I, I want to thank you guys, so many of you in here that I, that I know and are friends, uh, and, and you guys are working and plotting in the power of the Spirit to be, to be men and fathers that, that look like Jesus and glorify our Father. So I've experienced that in, in my own life, to be able to interact with you guys, to watch you. Um, I do watch uh, and learn from uh, so many of you, and so that is a joy for me. Um, so uh, for better or for worse, what I am today is partly a result of who you guys are. So take that however you want. Take that. I would go <laughs> start trying harder <laughs> or, uh, or say thank you, um, one or the other. Um, but it is, it is a difficult time to be a man, a biblical, biblical man. Um, so on times like this, when... Uh, Maybe we legislate it culturally to celebrate fatherhood. Let's, let's take advantage of that and uh, be thankful for the Spirit's work in us and ask him to continue to do so. Let's pray as we get started. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful that we can come this morning and behold you as we sang to start our time. We thank, the, thank you that we have seen you most clearly in the person and work of Jesus. Um, and so we want to take some time this morning to look at his finished work, the paradoxes of the cross, and to realize that that is the most clear portrayal of your own character, your self-giving, self-serving, or other-serving nature. And so we worship you today because through your finished work, we're reconciled to you, uh, and we ask that you'd simply take this time and work it out in our lives as another 
tiny little part of our discipleship in Christ to make us more like Jesus. And so take uh, the weakness that is me, take the, the simple things uh, of your creation and use your spirit powerfully and your word powerfully coming through those things to do things that are bigger and more glorious than anything we have seen and yet so often take place um, without any notice whatsoever. We thank you for being the God that you are. May we glory in you and worship you as we spend a few minutes in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read verses 15 through 21 of Galatians 2. I'm going to be messing with this thing, sorry. I've got this little Q-tip in my peripheral vision. So Galatians 2, 15 through 21. Let's read together. And uh, we'll follow as I read. And uh, we will use this passage as our springboard this morning. Paul says this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." What I'd like to do this morning, rather than having another week as Stacy finishes up his vacation uh, and is gone, rather than having another week where we're piecemeal and jumping around, uh, I want to take the chance to basically continue the thought processes that we've been having in Mark. So not just jump out and do something totally different for one week, um, but try to encapsulate what we have been seeing in Mark Um, and learning from Mark for the past months, and just maybe come at it from a different way. So again, Stacy and Chris the last few months have been um, opening Mark for us. Uh, It has been, I hope to you, um, a huge blessing. Uh, The the truths in Mark are are truly life-changing. And so what I want to do is not try to add to that in any way, because I can't, um, but just kind of attack it these thoughts in another way, and specifically to do it by looking at some of Paul's writings. Um, Of course, Paul is taking gospel truth and things that we've been seeing in Mark, and he's summarizing it, and he's writing it down and theologizing it for these churches that he's writing to. Um, And really what he does, and what we're going to see today, I hope, is, is he takes these concepts, these kingdom concepts that we've been seeing for months now, and boils them down to one all-encompassing, overriding thought that is um, really at, I think, the the crux of what we've been getting at in Mark and really is the crux of the Christian life, really is uh, the life of a disciple encapsulated. So, again, we could take time and and walk through, again, reviewing all of the things that we have seen in Mark, really like 
chapter 6 on as he starts to talk about what the kingdom looks like. We could take time to review those things, and I'm not going to this morning uh, because we have spent a lot of time uh, in those passages, and I hope um, you come now to this time uh, with those thoughts in mind. Um, simply to say that these kingdom concepts are paradoxes to everything we do and think as, as natural men. It's con- they contrast totally, completely to uh, what the values are of our society and culture. Uh, and so we've been seeing that God's kingdom, uh, there is glory and suffering, and there is greatness and leastness. Uh, we have seen that there is power and weakness. Uh, so these overriding concepts, these, these paradoxes to everything that's in our being naturally is what we've been seeing God's kingdom to be and the work of Christ to be. So all I want to do is take a few minutes. Let me tell you what we're going to do here so you kind of have an idea. doesn't mean you can fall asleep. Uh, but, but this is generally what I want to do is take just a couple minutes to, to look at the passage we just read and out of that passage to say, okay, what is the heart of what Paul is saying here? And then to see, once we see what the heart of it, what the heart of it is of what he's saying, that really all of a sudden it opens up everything he's saying to all of the churches and all his epistles. This is the grounding paradigm for Paul. Um, so I want to do that, and then out of there, just use this passage and some other passages to just talk about what that paradigm is, play it out a little bit, say what it isn't and what it is. And then in so doing, hopefully just drive us straight to application to say, what does this mean for us as Christ followers? Um, And then to to walk away again amazed by the gospel and encouraged to be disciples. All right, so let's let's, uh, do this. I'm going to be drinking water throughout. Um, Last time I spoke, which was like, what, almost two years ago now, I think. Carmen, (laughs) you asked me afterwards, were you chewing gum the whole time? I was like, I don't think I was. She's like, it sounded like you were chewing gum. Well, it's because my mouth is dry. (laughs) My dad used to tell a story of, I think he was in high school, and he had this professor, this little short squat professor that would talk and ramble and just got the dry mouth, you know, with the little goops all over everywhere. (laughs) And inevitably, before the lecture, before class was done, he would have, like, them sticking upper and lower. So when he opened his mouth, there would be, like, a string. And, uh... I forget the guy's name, but he said that they used to laugh. It never got old to just be like, you know, so-and-so, stalactite, stalactite, you know, clean it off. So, so <laughs> I think of that often, and I hopefully I will not have any stalactites today. <laughs> so Galatians 2. Uh, Paul is writing again to work through some issues that the church in Galatia is having. It's, it's uh, where Turkey is today. So these new believers there are working through what it means to be changed by the gospel. And so they're primarily Jewish believers too. And so they are coming from a Jewish background, a Jewish context um, that, again, is all the stuff we see in the Old Testament combined with several centuries of rabbinical teaching and what that means now in the first century for them. Um, So they've got this baggage, positive and negative baggage, with them trying to say, what, is it, what does this whole Christ event now mean? What does, what, what does life look like in Christ? And uh, th- there have been some issues um, where this church has been turning to what other teachers have been teaching, and Paul very adamantly calls them false teachers and says that the gospel they're teaching is, is another gospel entirely, and it's a gospel that should be accursed. Uh, 
so he's dealing with those types of things as these people are simply trying to understand what it means for redemptive history to continue, that, what, that Christ has come and done something significant, uh, and what is it now going to do in their practical lives. So Paul is trying to explain to them that justification, being made right with God, being reconciled to God, is not from their ethnicity and their nationality. It's, it's not this badge that they can pin on and say, I'm in because I you know, am this by birth. It is not through this law of which they have been living under. It is not through the glorious mosaic code that God had given for glorious purposes. They have been trying to be justified by it and believe that even in Christ, they're going to need a little of that to ultimately gain them favor with God. And Paul says that is not the case. You are trying to make the law do something that it was never made to do. The law was never a justifier. It was to help you realize that only Christ could be your justifier. And so he's helping these people understand that you cannot turn back to something that was a type and shadow of truth that we have in Jesus. And you cannot, okay, I'm going to take Jesus and accept him and believe all that, but just to make sure that that like, fire insurance card I've got in my, in my wallet is good, I'm going to do the both and. I'll get all my bases covered. Um, so Paul's trying to tell them, no, Christ himself took care of that. He fulfilled the law. It is all in him, and now we are in him. And so things, they are a-changing. And so you can understand, though, that this is going to be hard, right? Think about being a Jew with all of those traditions and beliefs, and now they are being played out in a way that the rabbinical teaching or whatever at that time had been teaching isn't quite what you expected. Um, it's so much more, but it is, it, is, it is different. And not only that, but now all of a sudden these Gentile sinners, they're welcomed into Christ too. What's going on there? So they're dealing with that. We're Jews, they're Gentiles, all of a sudden we're, we're one in Jesus. How does that look as we sit down and share a meal together? Because as a Jew, I've got things I need to follow as a Jew. To, to be able to fellowship with God as I eat. The Gentile, I mean, they're, they're dirty sinners, right? They don't follow these things. We saw in Mark, remember, the Pharisees getting upset because the disciples were acting like Gentiles and not wash, doing the ceremonial washings before they, before they ate. So now you've got these Christians being like, oh, okay, what, what, what are we doing? What, how does this work? This is what Paul is dealing with here. And so while I don't want to take all the time to just dig into these truths that he's hammering on, Hopefully we can see that Paul is trying to help them realize that they cannot return from whence they came um, to be justified. So you have this mix of Jew and Gentile, God grafting the Gentile into his plans and purposes, and everybody one in Jesus. Um, and Paul trying to help them see, too, that you're not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that is, the, that is the, the event that unifies all these people coming together in Jesus. So he's trying to help them work through some practical things. Um, if you remember, uh, he had to speak, he talks about it just before these verses, about having to talk with Paul, about, or uh, talk with Peter about uh, not quite understanding how this works. Uh, and so he's dealing with practical things. And then he also says, 
uh, midway through here, if our endeavor to be, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So he's, he's saying, if we are going to turn again to um, this way of life that we had beforehand, we are not trusting in the work of the Spirit. Contrasted, if you are now going to live like Christ and live under the law of Christ, um, and in so doing face ridicule from these other Jews that were condemning others for um, trusting in the finished work of Christ and faith alone. Um, the, he's kind of, you know, being facetious a little bit here in our endeavor to be justified in Christ. We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Like they're being found sinners by other Jews because um, they are endeavoring to be justified in Christ and trust in him wholeheartedly, and yet they're being condemned by others. Um, he says, it's not the case, certainly not. Don't worry about it kind of thing. Um, if I rebuild what I tore down, if I go back to what Christ has accomplished and conquered, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Talking about his personal testimony uh, kind of through here as well, weaving that into what he's teaching. So he says this, there, there are biblical truths here that are foundational. I, through the law, died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. So there's these things going on here. He's died to the law so that he might live to God. That really happened because he is and was crucified with Christ. And that results in him no longer being the one that is centered around himself. It's not this self-centered life he's living. It's a life in Christ. So it's no longer him who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So passages like that, we hear these phrases and we understand them to be true and um, they sound great. I mean, this was, this was one of my um, life verses from a younger age when I was in the phase of a couple years of Christian school and you have to have a good Bible verse to put with your name on the, the uh, yearbook at the end of the year when you're signing everybody's yearbook, right? You know, like, well, everybody uses John 3.16 or, you know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. What's another good one? Well, this sounds good. But really working out what he's saying here, this, this is, to unpack this, is, is a massive, massive uh, work. So I'm not going to try and do it completely this morning. Uh, but we see these truths at play in all of Paul's writings. He's helping these people understand that through the work of Christ, something monumental has taken place. And so not only is it a real-time event in history, these people could have stood and watched Jesus be, be beaten and mocked and scourged and hung up on a cross, the worst possible form of torture. So in the Roman eyes, Roman's eyes or Gentile eyes, the cross is this this awful symbol of torture and destruction um, of the Romans themselves conquering these people that are being hung there. They have victory over these people. Uh, and in Jewish eyes, the cross is, is cursed, right? Anybody that's related to that in any way has to be cursed, has to be evil personified, right? All the way back in the law, um, in the Pentateuch, it's the talked about the, the man that is hung on a tree, accursed, um, which has amazing prophetic um, uh, insinuations too. So 
he's saying not just has this actually really happened in history so that we can say it's an event that took place, but it was a work of God himself by which he does things that are mysterious to us, that we can't see and touch. They're not tangible. When we talk about this justification by faith, we can't walk in with some kind of like visual proof that these things have taken place, that our sin has been placed on Jesus, God's wrath has been placed on him, and that now that's as far as the east is from the west. We can't see that tangibly. We can't see that Christ's perfect righteous life was lived and then placed to our account, that there's this transaction taking place. And so our righteousness is Christ's righteousness. We can't see that. And yet, Paul's trying to help these people realize it is true. They've, they've operated within a religion full of symbolism and tangible things, that everything is physical that pictures something, right? And now all of a sudden, all those physical pictures are, are fulfilled and encapsulated in this mysterious physical work of Christ that works itself out in all these truths that all of a sudden we can't see and touch and taste and feel. We only see them through the Spirit's work in us to cause things to come out of us and through us that are not natural at all for us as sinners. It's all we can see. So he's trying to help these people realize the work of Christ, but more so he is helping these people realize that this isn't just an event that took place in the past that does something initially, and then, okay, we've got the cross thing, and we've got these truths that I was just talking about having taken place, and now we live in this mysterious, mysterious status before God, and then, okay, the cross, we can leave the cross back there, and then move on to something else. Move on to, okay, now we should obey and do good things, and let's pursue that on our, in our own strength, right? He's, he's saying, no, that's not the case. The cross is the metaphor, the paradigm. It is, it is everything not just to accomplish justification, to accomplish salvation, but to cause sanctification and to be the actual ethic by which the Christian lives. So this is what he's driving to, that we see the cross as the symbol and um, the, the power from which discipleship takes place. It is what I'm going to call a, a cruciform understanding, a cruciform life. So you've probably heard the term cruciform before. Um, if you like architecture and looking at that, you look at old cathedrals and things, and the, the shape of the cathedrals is a, is a cruciform shape. If you look at it from overhead, you know it's cross-shaped. Um, so that word has been around, and yet people are, are using it, uh, it seems in, I don't know, the last few decades to actually use it as a word to encapsulate this truth. And I, this is a truth, again, I'm not standing here this morning like blowing your socks off with this amazing truth that's never been talked about before. This is, I think, simple stuff. We get it, right? The cross saves, the cross sanctifies. Um, and yet, I feel that we often don't, don't apply it. We don't realize the magnitude of what, it's, what, what it is to be called a disciple of Christ and to live a cross-centered, cruciform life. So as we step back and we see Paul thinking this way and we see in this passage how he is saying, Christ's work is placed on my account. I have been crucified with Christ. My life now is no longer about me. It's no longer about me trying to save myself. It's no longer about my self-gratification. 
It's all of a sudden my life is defined and encapsulated in the way Christ's life was defined and encapsulated in the cross. So Christ comes and obeys the will of the Father to the point of death on the cross. He calls us then to go and he sends us as he was sent here. The Father sent him to live the same life. So all of a sudden Paul is saying, this is my ethic. This is everything. The cross is everything. And then all of a sudden we start to realize that this is not the passage that Paul talks about the cruciform life. All of a sudden we start to realize as we read that he's thinking this way and talking about it all the time. 1 Corinthians 2, the first couple verses. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he is playing out this cross-centered life. He says in Philippians 2, we read the, or Bob read it a few minutes ago, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. His life was centered on the cross, and we are to have this mind among ourselves. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We start to read the epistles and see every time Paul starts to move into exhortation to action, exhortation to listen to what he has said and now go as a result of what he said, it's all based on the truths of the cross. It's all about a lifestyle defined by the very life that defined Christ. And Christ's life was defined by his walk toward the cross and his obedience to the Father and taking up the cross. So this idea of cruciformity, this cruciform life, um, helps us understand a few things. The cross is not the means by which our sins are forgiven. Um, just that. It is that, but it's not just that. It, it becomes the template for all subsequent Christian living. Uh, when Paul writes about the cross then, he's referring to, yes, this actual physical crude implement used by the Romans to torture people to death. But he's referring to something more than that as well, the very shape of Christian holiness and discipleship. So all of a sudden we find ourselves having died with Christ, been buried like with him, like him, and raised to new life in him, as Paul says in Romans. We find ourselves identified with Christ. We are in him. But this Christ is a crucified Christ. And so we live not in our own strength, as Paul says in Galatians 2, but in the strength that comes through the cross. Let me explain cruciformity by saying again what it's not, okay? So a couple quick things here to help us maybe think about this more practically um, in light of um, how some maybe distorted views of the cross-centered life or taking up your cross and following after Christ, how it maybe plays out in some distorted ways. Hopefully it gives us a clearer picture of this biblical idea of the cross-centered life. So first of all, cruciformity is not asceticism, okay? You've heard the term asceticism before. It's this idea of self-improvement through denying your physical or earthly pleasure, right? Uh, in asceticism, a person is serving a God who they've basically made out to be a, a more harsh, wrathful God that demands these people themselves atone for their sins. 
and that atonement is caused by self-restraint, maybe self-harm. You see people actually reenact the passion of Christ in order to hope, hope, like, I really, really hope it works. I'm not sure if it will, but I hope it does kind of anxious work towards gain the approval of God. Asceticism pursues inner peace. Um, it pursues the spiritual knowledge by basically saying no to the world and making a big external physical statement of saying no to the world, right? So it's dualistic. There's, you know, this Gnostic idea of the earth is physical. Everything physical is kind of bad and evil and apart and separate from this God who we have to pursue and know through this spiritual, ethereal sense. Um, and so you show that you are saying no to the physical by self-restraint, self-denial, and through even physical abuse. That's not cruciformity, right? Cruciformity is basing its ethic on the finished work of Jesus. It's not pursuit. It's not obedience to earn salvation. It's a result of our salvation. And more so, it's, it's an earthy faith. It's an earthy uh, it's an earthy faith. It, it embraces the types and patterns and joys of God's good creation, right? It's, it's, we're not trying to say the earth and all the things that we have at our disposal is bad in and of itself, so we have to remove ourselves from it. We see that again in the example of, of God and Jesus, right? God comes into the world, takes on the form of a servant. It's as earthy as earthy can be. Cruciformity is not pietism either. And so pietism probably hits home to us more so than asceticism does. Pietism is, again, self-improvement. Note that. And it's about increased holiness through decreased interaction with surrounding sin and brokenness. So it's the same idea, like there's this world that's bad. My responsibility is to remove myself from it. Out of that, though, can come a self-righteousness. In this type of thinking, the God of the pietist is a far-off, kind of a crotchety, self-righteous picture of a guy with a British accent and a, you know, prep school blazer on with the, the shield there, you know, the coat of arms, and kind of the aristocratic type that just, you know, looks down and poo-poos on sin and washes his hands of it and will not, again, I am... I cannot deal with that. So it's this twisted, distorted view of God's wrath and justice and righteousness apart from sin. What can happen with pietism a lot, and, and again, pietism has its positives. If you look at American Christian history, all the way back to the Puritans, they were a very pious sort, and so there are some good things about this mentality. I mean, yet what can happen is it turns into this... Um, resistance to the rest of humanity and maybe again a little self-righteousness that um, we can't learn from anyone or anything that's different than us. It creates a bunker mentality, right? A, a subculture bubble type thing and so this sin is this otherness. In, in the bad sense of piety, sin is always something out there and it's never recognized that sin is in our hearts too. And we are, apart from Christ, no different than anything else. And so pietism can cause this inward focus. 
and can cause us after a while to think, well, at the end of the day, Christianity is really just about trying really hard not to sin. And yet, we know that there's more to the Christian life than that. So cruciformity is not pietism. In contrast, it recognizes that being a Christian is, like I said, more than trying really hard not to sin. It's couched in Christ's self-giving work to free us from sin. It's the pursuit of God's glory being spread to all nations throughout his creation because we've been reconciled and restored for his story and his purposes. It understands that while God is completely righteous and he's the antithesis of sin and evil, he's just to pour out his wrath on this sin. He's the one, again, that gets messy himself in the incarnation. He enters the world of sin to pursue his own, to redeem them. Cruciformity means that we know ourselves how sinful our flesh is. It is not a otherness of sin and removing ourselves from it, but it's actually understanding that holiness is the holiness that comes from being in Jesus and then being sent into a filthy, messy world, as we've been called to be the messengers of reconciliation. It actually drives us out into the messiness of life. It does not put us in a bubble to keep us far from it. And again, draw that back to the person and work, the life of Jesus. We see that same thing with him, right? He, he didn't come and set up a, a palace somewhere and everybody could come and see him there, but had to get through all of these ramifications before they could see him. We saw just last week that he's out there in the open, in the midst of the vulnerable, in the midst of the unloved, and he welcomes the least of these. This is the cruciform life. So we see this in Jesus' life. We must now see it as our call, as our ethic. It is a metaphor, for sure. It's a set of attitudes and actions expressed in and through Jesus that also define and describe the new life that a Christian disciple is called to pursue. So the cross is a symbol of the necessity of full commitment for those who will be Jesus' disciples. It's a metaphor, it's a symbol. We are called to understand and live cross-centered lives the same way Jesus did. It's also the paradigm by which we can view Jesus as our example for life. So, we can speak about Jesus being the exemplar of Christian living, but we can't ignore the cross-centeredness of that, right? Um, Peter talks about this well when he tells his readers, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Uh, listen to this quote by John MacArthur, and MacArthur is usually one that's hitting on the the um, theological truths of the atonement, right? He's, he digs deep into theology and talks about substitutionary atonement and all these types of things that are foundational to our faith. Listen to him talking about the actual practical example that Jesus is. He says, in his death, Jesus taught us how to live. We often look at his dying moments and observe that his death illustrates the seriousness of sin and the need for a savior to pay the price for our iniquity we recognize that by his substitutionary death, he died in our place. But Peter said that there's even more to the cross than that. Christ died not only for us, but also as an example to us. He died to show us how to live. And unless you think that the application to all this is like a Zig Ziglar pep talk, like, all right, guys, this is pretty neat. Let's go. Work hard, try hard, do more. 
that's not the case because we also recognize that cruciformity cannot be, is not, a do-more, try-harder discipleship. It is based in this past work of God's Son that now generates the present work of the Spirit of God. Right after this passage in Galatians 2, Paul goes back to dealing with the issues that these Galatians are struggling with, and he says, why are you being so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect through the works of the flesh? Why would you think that this crosswork of Christ is for this entry into fellowship with God, but not the power by which he makes that be so, that he makes you more like Jesus until one day you stand before him glorified and made new? Why would you think that's it's just the entrance into this life. It is the life itself. So we have to understand that we live in the spirit. It's a blending of both the crucified and exalted Messiah. We see this paradox that Jesus is exalted because of his humiliation. We understand that power comes through weakness, all these truths that we've been seeing. And it is through this present work of the spirit to work out the cross-centered life in us by which we live. This is not self-improvement like asceticism, like pietism, this is dependence, total dependence on the person and work of Jesus and his continued work through his spirit in our lives. So cruciformity cannot be this guilt-driven, fear-inducing, make God love me while I trudge in anxious hope that hopefully this will, this will turn out in my favor. It can only ever be joyful, courageous, resolute, spirit-empowered, plotting obedience as a result of God's self-giving grace. So we need to understand that before we ever say, let's roll up our sleeves to the task that God calls us to. We roll them up in our own power, there will be nothing taking place and the kingdom paradoxes that we've seen will not play out of us. They only play out of us through the person and work of Christ and his spirit in us. So an application, let me say, that this, is, this needs to be more than just us understanding, oh, okay, I get it theologically. This has to be us really wrestling, not just this one-time thing in, a, in one time when we come together and worship, but wrestling through life, through this long obedience in the same direction of discipleship. Wrestling with what it means to be defined by the cross. What does it mean to be defined by the cross? What does it mean to actually see these paradoxes that Jesus has been talking about and then exemplifying in things that happen as his disciples follow him around? What does it mean for them to actually be part of our life, to our, to, for our lives to be modeled and shaped by this cross-centeredness, the same type of cross-centeredness that Christ himself had in doing the will of his Father that led him to the cross? We live in a time and place and a society where the values are in complete antithesis to these truths, right? Our overriding ethic is not one of self-giving, other-serving, carry burdens, glory, and suffering type of living. It's, the overriding ethic is promotion, make much of myself, right? I was reading an article the other day where they do, um, they, they interview outgoing seniors from high school um, and ask them a couple questions like, do you think you're an extraordinary person? Do you think you are a person that will like, be God's gift to this world kind of idea? In 1950, when they started asking that, 20% said yes. 
55 years later in 2005, 80% of us, 80% of our outgoing seniors were like, I am extraordinary. I am extraordinary. I can't spell it, but I am extraordinary, <laughs> right? So we have this idea of promotion, that we have everything that it takes. There's actually a, a, a narcissism study. I, I got the biggest laugh out of this because they, they ask questions of people like, do you think you're worthy of somebody writing a biography about you kind of questions? And people that are like, oh yes, to those questions, in the last 15 years, it's gone up 30%. And I don't know what the percentage is, is but 30% change in 20 years shows that we are thinking far too highly of ourselves. But think about it. Your life from Monday to Saturday is spent selling yourself, right? Like, I need to promote myself. I need to update my LinkedIn profile and make sure everybody that also has a LinkedIn profile is saying that I'm good at stuff so that I can get a better job. I'm gonna put something on social media somewhere and see how many hearts or likes I get. And man, that is, that is saving grace to me the more that I get. We have this undercurrent of promotion and self-serving and me first thinking. It's totally the opposite of the self-giving love of Jesus. We get that, right? We, we understand it, but do we really take note of how subtle those things are? Where all of a sudden we're living, yes, we're Christians, yes, we love Jesus, and yet do our actions and motivations and paradigm for living look any different than the self-promoting society in which we live? A cruciform life is going to look different. It's going to be empowered by the Spirit, but it's going to be a total paradigm shift for for us, and it's going to be an ongoing work of the Spirit to change us and to renew our minds. So, practically speaking, as we work this out, maybe there's a mindset shift that needs to take place in your life. You've been hearing kingdom talk, and you've been hearing these paradoxes that are true, and in this context, as we're together and we're singing these songs, yes, it sounds good, but all of a sudden, tomorrow is Monday, and boom, we're hit with the war. Maybe our minds need to shift to this cruciform way of living and start looking at Christ's life. This is not a trite, what, did, what does, would Jesus do bracelet type of thinking either. Because it is a call to be hated. It is a call to ridicule. It is a call to maybe have to renounce prestige or promotion or things that would be good. It is not a call to comfortable, comfortable living where things just get a little bit better for us as, as life goes on. So it might take a mindset shift. It might take some practical shifts where you actually sit down and say, what am I even doing? Am I stuck in this rat race of the Christian life? Um, the rat race that looks much the same as everybody else's rat race around me? Or do you understand the purpose for which you have been called to Jesus? Are you making practical decisions where you are actually, because of a mindset shift, determining to say, what do these aspects of my life look like? And are they cruciform? Do they look like the cross? Maybe those shifts need to take place. Maybe it means conversations. Maybe it means sitting down and wrestling with the Spirit to say, I, I want to look like this. I understand that you will work powerfully within me when I have nothing to offer and that my life being defined by the cross will not be an easy one. So maybe it takes those things. Work itself out. I wish we could take 15 more minutes to say, what does that look like as fathers? Does our being a father 
look more like self-promotion, self-indulgence. Uh, your kids um, are more nuisance than um, people to be loved and nurtured. Your marriage look more like what you can get out of it than how you can serve your spouse. Does your vocation look like the cross? Does your attitude and actions and the way you go about your business look like the way Christ pursued the goal that was set before him? All these things we could play out in a multitude of ways, and you're going to have to take these things and hopefully wrestle with them yourselves. And as we continue through Mark, we'll continue doing it too. Uh, but these are, these are big things that we must wrestle with, and we in many ways need to sit up and take note of it. In case you haven't noticed, um, this mentality that we have as American Christians of like deserving stuff and having a right to center stage at some point to like infiltrate and, and change society and culture, that's, that's changing, folks. And we're going to realize, I think, sooner rather than later that we're going to be... Uh, the, the vulnerable, again, the downtrodden, the least, um, not just in theory, but in reality. So these are things that we need to think about. As we conclude, I want to remind you again of the power and goal of all these things. The author of Hebrews, don't know if it was Paul or not, but he's thinking cruciform type things when he says this in Hebrews 12. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight every sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus' life was one of cruciformity. He did his father's will. His father's will was to crush him, Isaiah 53, in order to provide atonement. For Jesus, enduring the cross was not simply experiencing hardship, being ridiculed, hated, having his family look at him sometimes like he was the redheaded stepchild, like, what is that guy doing? Things that, you know, maybe we feel are just horrible things to go through sometimes, having his message mocked and scorned. Jesus endured the cross. He endured the Father's wrath that we all deserved poured out on him. And yet he did it for the joy that was set before him. Think about that. What was this joy that was set before him? It was the knowledge that this work that was about to take place would be the watershed moment of human history. It would be the making right of wrongs. It would be victory over Satan, sin, and death. It was the belief in God's promises that they are true, that they would lead to unspeakable glory. So the cross, while shame to those who hated him and his message, was the tragic but necessary reality that led to the redemption of all of creation. And we are so called to take up our crosses. We do so not having to face the Father's wrath. Think about that. The difference with Christ's cruciform life and our cruciform life is that the wrath is gone. We do it out of a grace-saturated experience that we have in Jesus. So we're called to take up our crosses it requires spirit-empowered and driven endurance. Yes, it requires hostility, difficulty, exhaustion, possible loss of prestige, power, and promotion. It does not require facing the wrath of God for what we deserve. So there is joy set before us 
There's joy in the cruciform life because we are at peace with God. He no longer faces enmity. There's joy in the hope of what's to come. The cross-centered life leads to rest. Working hard, rolling up our sleeves in the power that the Spirit gives us leads to perfect peace. It leads to human flourishing in a world made new where God dwells with us. So today I ask any of you in this room that are, that are sitting here and you don't know where you're at with Jesus, you have not experienced his reconciling love, you can't say that you're in Christ and walking in faith and asking him to help your unbelief, all I ask is that you consider him. Consider him. Consider this message of the cross and ask God's spirit to give you a heart of faith because this is not a message and promise of leave this room trusting in Christ and it will all go well for you. It is, it is not the case at all. So ask Jesus to work in you. Run to him in repentance. And I challenge you to not do anything else today until you've come to grips with, with where you're at with him. And for those of you that say, I am in Jesus, I have been buried with him, raised to new life in him, I simply call you to keep looking to him. May we glory in the cross. May it define our lives. May we never tire or give up on seeing what this means to have our lives defined by the cross, which defined Jesus' life as well. Spirit, we ask that you would work this out in our lives today and every day. Thank you for your power and grace. Give us boldness. Give us courage to rest in Christ's finished work and desire, have affections for a life that is defined by these paradoxes of the kingdom because we understand there's joy set before us. We understand that this is true power. This is true glory. These things are part of your plan and through them we see you. So cause us to go with renewed energy, renewed desire to know you and to make you known. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.